I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land of which I am today, the Wajak people of Noongar Buja country. I'd like to pay my respects to all elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, First Nations peoples listening today. Welcome back to Eco Impactors, a podcast brought to you by Orangutan Alliance. My name is Blaine Edwards, and on this podcast, we talk with eco innovators, thought leaders, and change makers who are impacting our planet for the better. If this sounds like you, then feel free to subscribe, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back, Eco Impactors. My name is Blaine Edwards, and today we are joined by a legend in the space of orangutan conservation. Dr. Brute Gaudacas, world-renowned primatologist, conservationist, as well as founder and president of Orangutan Foundation International. So Dr. Gaudacas, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because the year 2021 marks a pretty significant milestone in your career in the sense that it marks 50 years of you working in the field. So five decades since you first set up camp in the beautiful jungles of Borneo to start your pioneering work studying orangutans. So for me, I'm, I'm really excited and also grateful for the opportunity just to have this conversation, first of all, uh, but also talk about that journey. So talk about that journey from the beginning to where we are now and also maybe where we want to be in the future and some steps that we can take as a collective to try and get there. But before we dive into that, I'd love to rewind a bit and talk about uh, the inspiration. So what inspired you to start working in this space of studying and protecting orangutans and their habitat? Well, I think it all started when I was a child. Uh, when I was a child, I would like I liked to uh, stay out in the backyard and gaze at the stars. And I wondered, you know, who are we? Where did we come from? Even where are we going? And those questions ultimately led me to orangutans because orangutans are not our closest living relatives in the animal kingdom. What they are is something perhaps a bit more profound. Orangutans are closer to our ancestors than we are. So orangutans are not our ancestors, but they are as close to our ancestors as we are going to get. So my interest in orangutans started with my interest in human evolution, human history, human prehistory. And the thing that also inspired me about orangutans is if you look at them, their eyes are very human-like. And in fact, if you look at them, it's like you're looking at little people, or sometimes big people, uh, in red suits. And there's something about their eyes that is mesmerizing. And um, it's something that many people who have come and visited us at Camp Leakey also discover that they look into the eyes of the orangutan and they sink. They practically drown. They can't get away from it. So many of the people who have visited us are now our supporters. And it's not, it's not us. It's the orangutan. They're mesmerizing. They can also be clowns. They also have a sense of humor. So there's this interesting contrast of these very soulful, bold, 
wise souls, and yet at the same time, they can be funny. It's interesting that you um, started with this stargazing because I love stargazing myself and pondering these deep questions. And then that kind of led you to these questions about pre-human history and then combining that with, I guess, orangutans. When you went to Borneo for the first time and you said that the eyes of orangutans were mesmerizing, do you remember that first moment where you looked into the eyes of orangutan? Do you remember that moment and, and what kind of emotions were you feeling in that moment? I was quite curious for me. Um, I actually remember a number of moments because different orangutans have different kinds of gazes. But I think one of the most memorable moments, is not the only moment, but it's one of them, is when I was searching for wild orangutans. And I think I'd searched for 10 days and I couldn't come across one. In order to observe orangutans, you have to find them. And in the evening, or the late afternoon, the 10th day, we came across an adolescent female. And she was wild. And she did something that most orangutans do not do, not wild ones. She came down the tree a little bit. So she was relatively level with me. And she looked at me. I mean, she looked. She looked. And she looked. There was no reaction. It, it was like she was trying to drink me in. It was like she'd never seen a human being ever before. And she probably had never seen anybody, probably hadn't seen a woman in the middle of the forest. And she probably had never seen anybody of, uh, of my appearance. I'm a Westerner. We're in the middle of the jungle in Borneo, in Indonesia. And then after she's kind of, I don't know, drunk me in, there's no reaction. She just climbed up and did what orangutans do, which is forage and eat. But mm. that moment, and I, I can't tell you whether she looked at me 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes. I can't tell you. But my former husband was with me. He was behind me. And he snapped a picture. And I remember when he snapped that picture, the click of the camera was like a thunderbolt. You know, disturbed the serenity of the whole forest. But it didn't stop her from continuing to look at me. So that I remember. And what I remember is the intensity of her curiosity and the intensity of her intelligence and the intensity of her stare. I mean, she was really trying to understand who and what I was. Hmm. And she was a beautiful young Beautiful. Interesting. So there was... The stare off, gazing into each other's eyes. Yeah, she was an adolescent female at the time. Yeah. And then she went off to do her own thing again after kind of having that encounter, absorbing whatever else, like seeing this other thing for the first time that she hadn't seen before, absorbing that. And then she went off and did her own thing in the forest. And it was like uh, her reaction was very different from most other orangutans. I have encountered similar kind of reaction but hers was the most intense because she actually came down mm. almost you know level because she could really see me and she showed no fear she only showed uh, interest and curiosity mm. i love that as mentioned earlier in the podcast this year marks 50 years of you working in the field curious and also a bit uh, i guess frightened to hear what you say about this but what changes have you seen in borneo in the last 50 years? 
Um, you know, I come back to Los Angeles or to Vancouver, British Columbia, and they're basically the same cities. I mean, there have been changes, but basically they're the same cities. Well, you come back to Borneo 20, 30 years later, and already it had changed. And people who uh, come back say that, oh, it's different now. And there's just no comparison today to what Borneo was 50 years ago. 50 years ago, Borneo was the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Borneo is where the world stopped. Um, and before I came, you know, in order to travel to uh, Java, there are people that I met who had spent 30 days on a ship just crossing the Jack Sea. And when I first came, uh, there was one plane <laughs> a week. And that was Saturday morning. And if that plane didn't come, we had to wait another week. And um, we were accompanied initially by an Indonesian government official from Jakarta. And um, later, when I discovered, when I went to Jakarta a year later, and I met with him and spoke with him, please remember there are no telephones at this time, not in Borneo anyway, um, I apologized to him when he told me that he had sat at that airport for a week after we left him. You know, we took him to the airport, accompanied him, and then we went back to our camp. Well, he sat there for a week, and I apologized. And he said, no need for apologies. He had waited two months at an airport in southern Sumatra a few years earlier. So that was Borneo, that was Sumatra, that was Indonesia. Fifty years ago, it's totally different now. Totally different. So there's been some rapid change between then, 50 years ago, and now. What do you think are the the reasons for that change? What is driving such rapid change in a place that, you know, 50 years ago was this luscious, almost wilderness-type place, untouched? Well, I think Indonesia made a very conscious decision uh, to enter the global economy. So, uh, well, I think 1966... Uh, Indonesia actually had made a conscious decision to stay away from the world. It was very difficult to get, you know, to get a visa to go to Indonesia. Uh, Indonesians didn't travel very much, and um, it changed. Suddenly, they wanted to enter the global economy. Suddenly, they wanted to exploit resources. Suddenly, they really wanted to enter uh, the world in an economic and even political sense. And so that's what happened. So when I first came there, um, living in the forest, there were just very small groups of people. And, you know, there were slashing-born horticulturists. Uh, They hunted a little bit, they fished a little bit. Um, But it still was not what we would call an advanced economy. It was not an international economy. Mm -hmm. And they they almost, almost, they didn't use money. They did, but you could still barter. I gave people one thing, and they gave everything back, and uh, totally different world, totally different. There are no roads, for instance. Yeah. Rivers are the only highways. Very different. Very, very different. So there was this conscious decision to um, get more involved in this global economy. And you mentioned advanced economy. 
Uh, but unfortunately, that sometimes is synonymous with stuff that is actually detrimental to the environment. Like, unfortunately, there is often a misalignment between economic incentives and ecological incentives, which is unfortunate. I think in theory, they can actually be the same thing. And hopefully we're working towards that. But at the moment, there seems to be a disconnect. <laughs> yeah, that is unfortunate because 50 years isn't well it's a long time but it's also not a long time considering how many the habitat that is lost and the species that have been lost through that time that's 50 years is nothing in the grand scheme of things and so much has been lost 50 years is like a blink of an eye a few blinks of an eye it just goes by so quickly yeah well, especially considering how long the this this lineage how, how long these animals have been around for mm -hmm. so many so many so many years and to think that this line of their existence is threatened to end due to the actions of humans in literally less than a century is is kind of ridiculous when you think about it in that sense like when you actually measure this line of their existence over time and then to, for that line to be threatened to to end due to the actions of humans in just a short period of time is it is actually ridiculous um but I'm, I'm curious, so you've been uh, involved in the space for a while. You've invested a lot of time and energy working in this space. What do you feel you have accomplished in the last 50 years? Well, what I've accomplished is that we, and I say we, because there are many people, local Indonesians, indigenous who work with me and have worked with me. Uh, my husband, to whom I've been married now for 40 years, is indigenous, he's a Dayak. And uh, we have saved... Uh, forests and we have saved orangutans and we've also helped the Indonesian public realize how important and significant orangutans and forests are. We're obviously not the only ones, but we have played a major role certainly in our province. And local people say, I don't say local people say, if it wasn't for you, this forest, this forest would be gone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were people that would say things to me, like when I was, you know, encountered in the forest, they'd say something like, um, as long as you're here, we're not going to cut the forest because you're protecting it. But the moment you leave, we're going to get in there before the big logging companies get in there and take it away from us. And these this is real people because, you know, they, they understood, uh, you know, we had a few encounters with the legal loggers in the very early days, and they, they began to understand that we were real, that what we were saying, that we were working to observe and protect orangutans, uh, was real. It wasn't, uh, you know, we weren't a logging company, we weren't prospecting for oil. When we first came into the, what became the park, it wasn't the park then, it was a reserve, uh, people thought that, you know, oh yeah, they said that observing orangutans, but what they're really doing is they're prospecting for oil or they're you know, cruising for timber or, you know, this or that. But then after we'd been there a few years, they watched us and interacted with us. And they said, it's real. You're actually doing what you said you'd be doing. So mainly what we did is we saved the forest. We saved at least one, maybe several wild during the time populations. We changed the attitude of the people. You know, the elites in our province who, who at that time were mainly indigenous Dayaks. I mean, I had the governor of our province sleeping on the floor, the man who became the governor, he was the governor then, 
sleeping on the floor of my bark log hut, you know, and I remember taking him into the forest and we were sitting there watching wild orangutan walk through the swamps. And, uh, you know, we're sitting there watching a wild orangutan way up there in the canopy. And after about 40 minutes, he says, oh, I think I've seen enough. <laughs> This is the this is the future governor. Uh, this was a man who became a governor, Pakara. Yeah, he was a one-term governor, but uh, you know he was indigenous Dayak. So I remember walking through the swamps wasn't a big deal for him. He probably was better at it than I was because he grew up uh, in the forest. But you know we didn't actually get a good look at that. <laughs> and he was very patient. I mean, about forty minutes he sat there with me, and the Ramtan basically was eating at the top of the canopy. So. You know, we had that kind of impact. Yeah. So, in terms of the work that that you do, there's um, is there like a like a hierarchy of things that you try and do first, like try and prioritize. Like, is there a priority for buying land? Is there a priority for kind of um, kind of creating uh, jobs for the the local communities there, or is it like a is there a hierarchy, or is it kind of a combination of all of these things? I guess in terms of of what you um, prioritize your time working on? Well, I mean, my, my first priority was to research wild orangutans, put data on wild orangutan populations so we understood them. But, um, you know, as time went on, uh, our priorities shifted in the sense that, you know, I don't go into the forest every single day at the crack of dawn and follow wild orangutans like I used to. Um, our priorities shifted to uh, influencing government policy. Uh, it shifted towards persuading the government to uh, set up more protected areas. Uh, it was shifted towards uh, working to help make Tanjung Kunti, which is a wildlife reserve or game reserve, uh, to a national park. And now we're, we're trying to persuade the powers that be uh, to establish Tanjung Kunti National Park as a World Heritage Site. And believe you me, I mean, I'm not an expert at this kind of bureaucratic procedure. It's hard. But, you know, we're working with uh, a few retired government officials, and maybe in 10 years we'll, we'll get it done. Uh, the main thing is just to keep on pushing, keep stressing the importance of orangutansky, protecting the forest, because once the forest is gone, the orangutans are gone. Saving individual orangutans uh, persuading local people, having some input into what happened locally and nationally. And I, I think we're doing that. I mean, we've been doing it for 50 years. So mm -hmm. I've reached a point where sometimes I'll get into a taxi in Jakarta and I'll mention you know, something about being from Borneo, from Kalimantan, and the taxi driver will recognize me. And that's Indonesia. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we've had some impact. I'm never tell you a few stories. I'm not saying that it's just us, because there's been a whole movement of young people in Indonesia, conservationists in Indonesia, who are also pushing the government forward. But the problem is that, you know, Indonesia was, when I went there 50 years, was still a very traditional kind of country, very traditional people. And now that's changed. I and mean, now that's changed. People are much more... Uh, you know, into, I don't want to say the Western way of dealing with material goods, but, you know, suddenly money is important. 
years ago, at least in three months, and it wasn't. Now it is. I mean, now indeed, everybody else in some way. So, you know, it's it's a wonderful country, um, but the transformation has been incredible. And even Indonesians talk about it. They said that, uh, you know, certain things that were very common in terms of cultural practices and certain kinds of courtesies uh, have now dropped by the wayside. People rush, you know, to get what they can get. Yeah. We live in a world where there's a lot of rushing around. One thing that you mentioned was just this idea of kind of just keep working, this idea of just putting, continuing to put one foot in front of the other. And I kind of liken anyone that's trying to get involved with conservation in some way, you almost have to approach it like you're a marathon runner. Like if you're involved in the space, you're in it for the long haul. It's not a sprint and it, it shouldn't be treated as a sprint. It is this, it is a marathon. And as part of a marathon, it's, uh, it's, you kind of just have to keep pushing through that you're going to be faced with a lot of walls, but you have to kind of push through those walls and get to the finish line. In terms of the, I guess the threats to orangutans, there's from my understanding, there's a, you know, a couple of, you know, big threats out there. You have deforestation, you have palm oil plantations, and you have the wildlife, the illegal wildlife trade as well. In your opinion, what needs to happen to improve this situation? to enable kind of more sustainable conservation efforts in terms of conserving habitat and conserving these species? Like what needs to happen? I think the entire society, whether in Indonesia or elsewhere, has to change their priorities. I mean, we cannot keep on going the way that we are going, and certainly not in Borneo. We need sustainable palm oil. And, you know, you have all these outfits that say they're sustainable and pushing so-called sustainable palm oil, it doesn't exist. It's it's not sustainable now. What we need is truly sustainable palm oil, you know, not this massive industrial monoculture that destroys the forest and keeps on going destroying the forest. We need a shift in priorities. We need people to become less materialistic and more spiritual. And, you know, until something like that occurs, in society as a whole, and until politicians start taking the lead or start following the lead of you know young people who are you know concerned about the environment, uh, nothing's going to change. You know, I just read something this morning about some trillion-dollar green plan that the U.S. government is you know going to hoist on uh, on the American public, and the reason that. I'm concerned is because even though it's supposed to be green, it appears that the oil companies are going to be getting massive subsidies. Subsidies? But it's going to be kind of under the radar. You know, they're going to get massive amounts of money, you know, to make fuel more, you know, more carbon friendly or whatever. It's just another way of feeding the machine, of feeding the beast. And the thing also about electricity, I mean, you know, if everybody has electric cars, what happens if the grid goes down? <laughs> yeah, I get where you're coming from. I think we've got well, a lot of um, a lot of problem solving to do. Well, I think it has to be uh, less, less, less competition to accumulate materialistic goods. I mean, there has to be more communion with nature. There has to be more, there has to be this, kind of spiritual awakening 
when people start to realize that it's not about possessing as many gadgets and as many trinkets and as many things. It's a relationship, and it's not just a relationship with other people, which is also important, but the relationship with nature, with animals, with the mm-hmm. universe. I mean, we have to move in that direction because otherwise we're going to, we're trapped. I mean, we're all trapped. Yeah. We all have to earn other way. You know, except for the very fortunate people who can go out into the forest and collect mushrooms and, uh, and grubs and whatever. And there are people like that in Borneo, but it's very difficult for uh, millions of Westerners to do this. We don't have the skills and we don't have the resources. And the other thing is that we have to realize that we can't keep on populating the earth. You know, we have to stop populating the earth. I mean, there has to be some massive shift. And I'm not a philosopher. I'm a simple kind of person. But there has to be a shift. Yeah. A shift in attitude. And until that shift comes, the politicians aren't going to do anything but do what they're doing today or yesterday or whatever day, in which, you know, they say it's green, 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 but yet under the cover of this green plan or whatever it's called, Mm. they're giving billions of dollars to the oil companies to basically do something a little bit more sophisticated and deceptive than they've been doing in the past. So we kind of, in order to for this change to happen and for that change to be sustainable, we kind of have to, like you mentioned, change our uh, priorities. It's like almost this uh, mental change that we have to do. We need to change our relationship to the environment our relationship with other people, our relationship with the economy, like there's, that's not the only relationship that is important for like a country and for, for people and communities. But one other thing that came to my mind was changing the relationship with our ourselves, because all our actions are kind of, you know, influenced by our thoughts, which come from ourselves, they are affected by like external forces as well. But if we need to change our relationship with ourselves, I, I feel like, um, Orangutans, in a way, would probably be good teachers in that regard because they seem to be, uh, I don't know, you're the one that's obviously the expert at this, but it seems like they're quite self-aware and maybe they have a good relationship with themselves. Like, What are your thoughts on that? Have I got that totally wrong? Well, you've got it totally right. Didn't Buddha say something? Uh, I forget what Buddha said. He, he said, um, you are what you have thought. Something like that. I, I, I forget the exact saying. There's a Buddhist saying, Buddha actually said it. Yeah, that rings a bell. You're a result of what you have thought. So um, you have to change the relationship with yourself. You have to find yourself. You have to be a satisfied person. You have to be a serene person. You have to be serene and tranquil within yourself. And it's like, isn't there, actually, I think it is a Buddhist country, Bhutan. Isn't there a country that actually doesn't measure its gross national product, but it measures gross national happiness? <laughs> I, I don't know, but that's a really interesting concept. Yeah. Which is a this nation. It's a small nation, but you know they're in the Himalaya next to Tibet. And uh, I have a sneaking suspicion that um, if we go visit Bhutan, which I would love to do, I've never been able to, uh, we would find that people there are very happy because they're much more concerned with their own thoughts and spirituality and their inner self at the same time that they probably 
have a great deal of compassion with other people because I mean, you know, the Dalai Lama, you know, who is the leader of the religious spiritual of Tibetan says, you know, have it doesn't matter what religion you are, as long as you have compassion. Mm -hmm. As long as you practice compassion. And the thing is, it's not just compassion with other people, it's also compassion with the rest of the world, with nature, with animals, even with plants. Mm. You know, and and the old Dayak religion, which my husband still follows, uh, which is Kaharingan, it's now subsumed under Hinduism. Kaharingan Hindu, but it's just Kaharingan. It's your relationship with the entire universe, even your relationship with water. Um, they believe that anything that an animal, a plant, or a person has touched, even the water that you know they have bathed in, has power. And, you know, I, I think we have to go back to those kinds of feelings, which also underlie Christianity. I mean, the original Christianity of 2,000 years ago, you know, also very interesting to say, it's very spiritual. It's about your relationship with yourself. I mean, that's why you had monks living, you know, in caves. Like you do nowadays, you still have Buddhist monks living in caves. You know? and that's what we have to go back to. We have to go back to that. And once we deal with that, then I think it would be easier to change our economic systems and our political systems. We don't need a revolution, per se, but we do need an evolution that almost edges revolution. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. We, we almost need to address the root of the problem. We need a fundamental shift in how we think as a species, which then will inform how we act. And we almost need to redefine value, what we think of as valuable. Valuable shouldn't just be measured in money or GDP, should be measured in some other metrics such as happiness or ecological health and all these other different things. We need, we need to redefine what is valuable. Uh, and then from there, hopefully that can lead to things that make sense for people, planet and profit as well. Like there is probably a model where all those things can work in harmony. When we talk about change, like we're just, uh, Sorry, you, I just, yeah. uh, I don't mean to interrupt you, but, um, uh, uh, you know, what, once this change happens, then there'll be less violence in the world. It's one of the things that really uh, seems paramount in this world of ours now is increasing violence. And if we change our values, and what, is, what is violence about? It's about resources, it's about power. Mm. You know, if we value ourselves and value other people for themselves, then we don't need to fight about resources and power. 100%. When we are talking about change, though, like we just were talking about then, individual change is obviously important, changing how we think. But a big part of the picture is also the rule makers and the decision makers, um, so the governments, essentially. So what are some government initiatives that need to be put in place, in your opinion, to assist the conservation of orangutans in their habitat? As, and other species as well. Like what government initiatives need to be put in place for this to, to happen? I think forests need to be protected. There need to be more parks, more protected areas. I, I think also um, laws need to be enforced. There are a lot of good laws, you know, in, uh, in place. Like Indonesia has excellent laws. But the problem is, as with many countries, those laws are not yet enforced. But the major thing that also has to happen is climate change has to be addressed. If climate change is not addressed, then it doesn't, even for orangutans, 
Uh, there was a study done a few years ago where, you know, if not another tree is cut down, if not another plantation is established, that one, they estimated that one-third of orangutan, uh, orangutans in the lowlands, uh, one-third of orangutan populations in the lowlands are going to disappear, are going to go extinct because the fruit tree um, are going to be affected by heating of the globe. So, you know, climate change is a very important part of this. We need to pay attention to it. And for orangutans, it's crucial. They live on the equator. If it heats up, I mean, those trees are going to die. And orangutans are going to be forced up the mountains. You know, and Borneo doesn't, doesn't have that <laughs> mountains that are, you know, that high. So where are orangutans going to go? They're going to be sitting on mountain peaks. Mountain peaks that even today do not have snow. Mm. And so... Um, Climate is a very important part of this. We can't, we can't forget it. And, you know, we look at the symptoms, and the symptoms are the materialism, you know, the value systems of modern societies. Uh, but the real symptom, sorry, the real underlying cause is climate change. And also, you know, the, uh, the loss of biodiversity, which is horrific. And of course, there are animals, you know, fall right in there. Let it go. So climate change is a big one and it's a global problem, obviously. So hopefully governments can all, you know, rally up around that idea, considering it, it literally affects everyone. Yeah. Fingers yeah, crossed. It's so interesting because, you know, I've been to the Arctic a few times and I really enjoy being in the Arctic for a variety of reasons, but um, I'm looking at polar bears. I mean, polar bears, you know, totally they're, they're apex predators, obviously. Orangutans um, are apex food doors, we want to call them. Uh, polar bears and orangutans are basically caught in exactly the same trap, even though you can't imagine mammals that are, are different. I mean, they're both large mammals, but, you know, different ecologies, different uh, foraging strategies, so on and so forth. But yet, they're in the same trap. You know, if we don't change it for polar bears, you're not going to be able to change it for orangutans and vice versa. And that's the horror of it. And I have to tell you that uh, somebody asked me to uh, uh, to join uh, a polar bear organization in Canada. Well, because they saw the linkage. They saw the linkage. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of links, I imagine. I mean, it's all interconnected. As someone that admires work that you've done and do today, I'd love for you, if you can, to share a little story about one moment, uh, one of your favorite memories uh, that you've had in the field. If there's any, I'm sure you've got many, but if there's any any memory that kind of sticks out at the moment, if if you could share one of those stories with us, that'd be cool. Oh, there's so many, and I, uh, but I think one that I can remember. I mean, I'm sitting here trying to fish one out. The many that I have. Uh, one that comes to mind is uh, uh, when my former husband, Rob Brindamore, and I were following a wild orangutan. It was a wild adult male, and he was sitting on the ground eating termites. And he was relatively close to us. I was closer, he was my nose, sitting on the ground. You know, he's over there, sitting on the ground eating termites. And then Rod says to me, Oh, he says, I ran out of film. I've got to go back uh, and uh, get some film. And he's off. 
And somehow I'm sitting there, you know, closer than I really wanted to be. A huge adult male. And uh, so I'm continuing to write my notes, not looking at me. So um, he's habituated. And then something happened. And I think what happened was he was bit by fire ants. So all of a sudden, he stands up and he walks towards me. And I was thinking, well, hopefully he doesn't blame me for it. <laughs> but I'm continuing, you know, to write. And he comes so close. He's walking past me. And he's so close that I could have reached out and touched him. Kind of patted him like that. You know, patted his back. And he stops. He doesn't look at me. And then he long calls. And the long call can be heard for a mile, even two in the dead of night, in the stillness of night. And he's long calling. And the long call lasts at least a minute, sometimes two. And I mean, my body is practically, you know, vibrating. vibrating. You know, from the sound, he's close. It could be more than maybe a meter away from me. And like I said, I could reach out and touch him. And I mean, I had never been that close to wild adult male or anytime before. And actually, I, I think it was close later, but um, that was uh... that, that was when they were fighting. Uh, when adult males were fighting in the To them, I was totally irrelevant. I couldn't just stump on the ground. And he stops long calling. He doesn't look at me. He's looking away. He's looking, standing like this. And then he walks away. (laughs) And you know, the awe that I felt at that moment, it was like an encounter with God. He could have reached out and torn me to bits. He could have done anything he wanted. But he didn't. You know, the benign nature he was indifferent. Basically, he was indifferent to me. And he just walked on by. But later, he sat down again and started reading too much again. And that encounter really had an impact, impact on me. Well, I mean, I've had lots of encounters, but that was one of the first ones where I had an interaction with an adult male around the time. But it really wasn't an interaction. It was an indifference. But he was aware of me. I mean, he was telling me something because he didn't have to go like this and come right and stand in front of me. You know, he wasn't facing me, he was facing that direction. I was up here, he was there. Wow. You said that it felt as if he was trying to tell you something. If if he had to take a guess, what do you think that would have been? But he had power, but it wasn't power in a you know in a human sense. It was just that he was a force that he needed to be respected. And I mean, we always respected the orangutans that we followed. Uh, you know, we tried actually not to get too close to them. You know, they made they were uncomfortable, we moved back. Uh, we also had rules that we didn't talk in their presence. Um, unless sometimes there were circumstances where they liked it if there were two or three people where we talked. Because then it was like we weren't paying attention to them, and we weren't going to do anything. Um, but normally we were silent in the presence of wild or anything. We were silent, and that was partially to show respect for them. So he was making a statement about his power that he was a force. I mean, he needed to be respected, but it was very subtle. You know, it wasn't words. It was just that he was there, and that he could be there and not do anything to me. 
Yeah, you could have ripped me to shreds. You're talking about <laughs> 250 pound uh, longer, you know, with canines this long. I mean, I've seen what they do to each other. Mm. I know, it, it was awesome. Like I said, it was, it was like the awe I felt was like I had just met God. And in a way, I had, because it's nature, it's mm. the force of and we may call him other names, but ultimately, you know, no matter what our spirituality or religion, God is nature. And he was there. Hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, you often hear of kind of stories that people have with, you know, different animals and you hear that that kind of experience has impacted them. So you just said that this is a moment that has impacted you. In terms of that impact, like what what does that kind of um look like does it just make you does it just drive you further to do what you do or does it sometimes shift the way that you think about what you do do you know what i mean when you kind of working in the field is it more it just amplifies your mission every single time you're working with them or does it sometimes shift the way that you view these problems or shift the way that you think about the world as well well i think what it does is it makes the mission more important more significant in the universe, you know, because we're not working for ourselves, we're working to continue nature. I mean, that's what that remittance represents, the continuation of nature and perpetuity. If we don't protect nature, then it's all going to be lost, and uh, we will also lose ourselves. I mean, cannot, humans cannot survive without nature. Yeah. If the sun doesn't shine, you know, if the waters dry out, well, going to be extinct just as quickly as all the animals and plants. So, mm. you know, so my, I'm, but I, I think when, when you meet, and I've met a few conservationists who have been at it a long time and really believe in their mission. I, I've noticed that they have, yes, they're, they're scientists and naturalists, but they also have a deep vein of spirituality that one say it's very similar to religion. Hmm. Yeah, they may not be church going or whatever, but they are in a sense religious because they're so spiritual. And that that spirituality is what allows them to take risks and be killed. I mean, it's it's like every month you read about another conservation, it's just you know, someplace like in Kenya there was a woman who was defending elephants who was just recently shot. And we don't hear about it with people. Yeah, it's tragic. And Africa, I mean, yeah. Hmm. But you get a sense that these people are, are in their own way, you know, and I'm not trying to elevate them, but they're, in a sense, almost saints. Hmm. Secular saints, because they're, they're fueled by the mission. And that's what they do, like this woman who died and uh, was killed in uh, assassinated actually in Kenya recently. I mean, I knew nothing about her, but I read a little bit about her, and, uh, you know, she had a mission. Mm. And, I, and it's true of everything. I, I don't even think it's true of conservation. I think it's true of, of, of people who, um, you know, there are people who, think who we don't think of as spiritual at all. You know, for instance, you know, billionaires who want to go into outer space, right? You know, we think they're crass and using all kinds of tons of, you know, thousands of tons of carbon every minute that they're 
spaceships are going. But you know, I'm not sympathetic to that. But if I think about it, there's a spiritual element to it. If you actually interviewed them, interviewed them, interviewed them, but why do they want to go to space? I mean, what is propelling them? It's not materialism. Yeah, it's this deeper passion. There's, there's, um, yeah, I think that spiritual force, what, however you define that, often comes when people focus on something that they're extremely passionate about and just go for it. I think a lot of them will have some sort of, however you want to describe it, a spiritual force or something that is pushing them through that, um, whether that's going to Mars or whether that's saving the rain tan. If someone's doing that and that is them 100% and that's what they are on this planet for, then I've, I can respect that. Yeah, me too. Even though, you know, I, I think it's, I don't necessarily agree with it, but, uh, but recently, yeah. was it? The two billionaires who went to space the last week or so, you know, but it's a passion, but in that passion, there's a core. There probably has to be a core of spirituality for them to be so focused on it. Yeah. We're talking about how uh, there are a number of, I guess, people that are trying to solve or help out in the space. Uh, so you have a number of NGOs that are working to help save endangered species around the world. Do you think that there are kind of missing parts that many NGOs could be kind of focusing on? Uh, what, what can NGOs do to assist in saving endangered species? And maybe, yeah, what, what are some things that maybe they uh, are missing in terms of their strategy? Well, I think what, what, you know, I've been doing this for 50 years. And what I noticed is that uh, the human ego seems to get in the way a great deal. You know, I, I make it a practice never, you know, to criticize or say anything negative about any other conservationists, no matter in public, you know, no matter what I actually feel about them, because I don't want to in any way disturb their mission. You know, they're helping pick your animals, they're helping a certain ecosystem. You want to do everything in your power uh, to help them, even though it's not your mission. But you don't want to disrupt their mission. But, you know, there's so many people who, you know, they bicker and they quarrel. And it's it's like, it seems almost like quarreling about medieval times, you know, how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. And I noticed that, you know, that... Uh, um, you know, I, I don't know, but I'll, I'll use the zebra people as an example. I don't know anybody who works specifically with zebra, zebra conservation, but it would be like, you know, there's 10 or 20 zebra organizations, and maybe they don't even talk to each other, or they're in different countries. They might be in different countries because zebras are found throughout Africa, much of Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and then they criticize each other, and a part of it has to do with it's a lack of funds. You know, everybody's going for the same funding, they have different ideas, and it's like, uh, uh, I think there could be less human ego involved, that's all. I think mm-hmm. that's one thing I've noticed. And I also think that perhaps that one has to be strident and outspoken. Sorry, one has to be outspoken, but one doesn't have to be strident. Because when you you strident, you tend to turn people off. Mm. And I, I remember once uh, at a fundraiser that uh, we gave in a board member's home, 
um, you know, I talked to about the crisis facing the Raymond Towns, and afterwards, one of the board members said, he said, you discouraged me. He said, no, I don't want to help. The situation is so desperate that I don't want to help because I don't think I'm going to make a difference. This is what he said to me. And then I realized that, you know, it's you have to give people hope. You have to have optimism. You have to find solutions. You can't just delineate how terrible the situation is because the situation is terrible. It's probably much worse than we think it is. I mean, I just read yesterday or the day before that the Gulf Stream, you know, the Gulf Stream that goes past uh, Europe, mm -hmm. it's like one step away of breaking down. That's going to have, I mean, I'm not a climatologist, so I don't know exactly what the consequences would be exactly, but I do know that it's serious. Yeah, and that's probably a big challenge that we're facing at the moment from people trying to communicate these problems is striking that balance between the severity of the problem, but also inspiring hope as well, like striking that balance because we need hope, but also this is, this is actually a really big problem, but we still need hope. Like striking that balance between the two is quite a, um, is going to be quite a challenge. In yeah. other words, people are just going to jump off a cliff. Yeah. Where they're going to run away and live their own lives and not worry about it. Yeah. So, I, I think there are all kinds of issues. And with the orangutans, one of the issues that they face is that they are the unknown ape. Mm. You know, people, if you ask 100 people on the street what is an orangutan, my guess is that maybe 10 of them won't be sure. They might say they're an African monkey. I mean, I'm not, I mean it's that bad sometimes. But orangutans are not known, and because they're not known, and because the public isn't in love with them, that it's it's hard to uh, get people uh, worried about them. So part of my mission and uh, is to uh, this is part of it, and our foundation is to let people understand how how marvelous and how precious and how important these animals are, and their ecology. Um, for the next question, I'd love to bring on Amy from Orangutan Alliance. Uh, to ask a question relating to just generally like how can we help but i'll, I'll let her I'll, I'll pass the mic over to her to to ask the question hello blaine and burrito so i first went to indonesian borneo in 2014 um and i went there because i learned the plight of palm oil on orangutans and i learned that they were endangered and when I was over there, I read so much about your work, Furute, and I went to Tanjing Puting and Kutai National Park and got to uh, see wild orangutans. And it was just the most incredible experience, as you've shared today. And I felt very inspired by the work that you were doing over there and that you have been doing and the change that you were making as one single individual. And I remember when I first saw my first wild orangutan and staring up at them and thinking that I could be there forever just watching them. And I just thought, how can we not protect these incredible creatures? And whilst it was a magical and spiritual trip for me, I couldn't help but feel a little scared and sad um, of the survival of orangutans if we in the Western world continue to use palm oil and strip the forest for our greed. 
So my question to you as a consumer and as someone who cares about conservation and orangutans as all our listeners here do, what can we do to take action as one individual um, to assist in protecting orangutans? Well, the first thing that one can do, and obviously the Remington Alliance is trying to do it, is stop using palm oil. And, you know, there is no real sustainable palm oil now. It's, it's a whitewash. Actually, it's a greenwash. And uh, I think if consumers make their voices known, their opinions known, then the large industrial palm oil companies are going to have to change their practices and actually uh, be sustainable. It's going to be hard. Um, they're not going to make as much, as much money as they do now. Uh, they're going to take, you know, it's going to be difficult. But it can be done. It can be done. There are studies that show it can be done. Uh, but they refuse. And the reason they refuse is because there isn't enough consumer pressure and also because it will cost them money. Now, I have met the heads of a few palm oil companies. I've met the head of the, one of the heads of the largest palm oil company in Indonesia, the second largest in the world, and um, members of his family. And you know, they're good people. But the problem is that they're also caught, you know, in this, what we were talking about earlier, in the system, economic system, where you have to rush, you have to make money, you have to, you know, you have to keep on going, you can't stop. And of course, I'm sure they have you know, thousands of workers and so on and so forth. So, yeah, we have to, you know, either don't use palm oil or use as little of it as possible. And the second thing is to plant trees. I mean, there is one thing that, you know, in addition to protecting forests, there's one thing that we can all do, and that is plant trees. You know, if we planted a trillion trees on this planet, I mean, there probably isn't enough space to plant a trillion trees, uh, we could overcome global warming. Not Maybe not totally, but we could overcome it. We could make a difference. So plant trees. You know, even if it's just in your backyard or front yard or on the side of the road. And that's what we're doing. That's what all five is doing. We have a, we've planted almost half a million trees since 2000 and... Oh, gosh, I keep forgetting. I think it's 2018. Oh, no, sorry. 2017. We began our education program in 2018. Plant trees. And the third thing is um, contribute. You know, if you can't give money, give what you can. And if you can't give money, uh, then write. Write your politicians. Let people know that this is something that you care about. Because if you help around the towns and if you help Tropical rainforest, you're helping nature, you're helping the planet. Um, and the final thing is, you know, support all conservation organizations as much as you can. Maybe, you know, even small local ones that are trying to set up a park in your city or your county. Or, you know, lots of things that people can do. And they're very simple things. I mean, none of it is, it comes from genius. I mean, it's just, People can do plant trees. Mm. Use palm oil or use as little bit as possible. 
Yeah. And you too. I mean, I'll write letters to the editor. I mean, I've actually written, you know, editorials. I mean, it's difficult, but newspapers often get published letters, but, you know, just be active and, and also tell people. So I was just speaking to a, a donor um, of OFI Canada and, you know, called it to thank her for her donation. And I asked, how did you find out about us? And she said that her daughter's friend went to Bali. Not her daughter, her daughter's friend. And while her daughter's friend was in Bali, she spoke to somebody in Bali who talked about the palm oil crisis. The palm oil was demolishing orangutan habitats. So when she came back to Canada, she spoke to the woman's daughter, and the woman's daughter spoke to the mother, and what they decided to do is they decided to forgo Christmas presents from within the family and instead donate the money to orangutan conservation. So, I mean, it's thinking, what a chain. A friend, a daughter who went to Bali and met somebody in Bali. I mean, you know, what, what a fascinating story of how this lady and her husband um, came to recognize that orangutans were in real trouble. So, you know, telling people, talking to people, it reverberates like those ripples that um, go forth when you throw a rock into a stone into a pond. You don't know where that ripple will reach. Yeah, that ripple effect is like the power of word of mouth these days has a lot more potential impact than, say, you know, a few years ago because everyone you know, is connected with each other in digitally. So yeah, so that's the word of mouth is a good one. Going to the shop, not buying palm oil products. Planting trees is a, another big one. And I, I'm just thinking like if we, because trees are such powerful things, they, they take the carbon, they turn it into oxygen and, and people don't really, I, I feel like a lot of people don't, appreciate that like if we said that these were machines that converted oxygen i mean converted carbon dioxide into oxygen people will probably be more impressed by it like calling it some mm -hmm. sort of machine mm -hmm. but it's kind of that that is what it is but one that's way prettier um so planting trees is a good one if writing to the governments uh writing letters sharing the word donating obviously to to organizations and supporting the work on the ground so there's heaps of little things that we can do and each action that we have, uh, each action that we do has a ripple on effect. Uh, and you don't know kind of who you may influence by this certain thing that you do today. So little by little, little becomes a lot is a, one of my favorite quotes. And I think that's kind of how we have to approach it. All these little actions will add up over time. I've got one last closing question. Is there anything else either of you wanted to bring up before I ask the final question? I think it's also important to emphasize that uh, conservation organizations are very badly underfunded. If you compare even the hugest ones, you compare them to big corporations, I mean, it's just nothing. Um, so, you know, I do ask people to contribute to Remagen Foundation International, or FI, so we can carry on our work and hopefully we can carry it on in perpetuity as orangutans and forests do need help. And uh, the other thing is that I didn't mention, 
I think it's helpful to be respectful of nature. So, um, you know, I, I respect spiders. I respect insects. And especially since I've been reading that insects and insect species has just really declined in the past few decades. Um, so I think being respectful of nature is also very important. And I also think that an organization like the Remington Alliance uh, is very important because you're getting a message, a very specific message to people. Mm-hmm. And I think that specific message can have a greater impact than any other messages. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I just wanted to mention that. And uh, obviously, wherever we post this in the description, there will be links to... Um, the website for both Rangtown Foundation International for people to learn more about your work and donate as well on there and support and connect on social media and then obviously as well with the Rangtown Alliance. So um, there are two avenues people can go down to uh, to, to learn and, and support. Um, yeah, just getting involved is in, in one way, shape or form, however you can is a good idea, I think, and will be much appreciated. Um, as a closing question, I'd love to know, based on your kind of many experiences uh, working closely with orangutans, what do you think are some important life lessons that orangutans can teach us human beings? Well, I think they teach us that we need so little. Hmm. You know, when I was walking in the forest by myself you know, for years and years in the early days. Uh, I got to realize that all a human being actually needs is uh, food, clothes, shelter, and family or friends. And that's it. I mean, that's all we survived uh, in, in the forest. We have a barkwald hut, and our barkwald hut in the forest, a forest hut, which was Camp Dorky, uh, didn't even have walls. You know, and uh, we cooked over an you know, open fire, and uh, you know, our clothes were rags. In fact, the local people would stare at us because we were so we were so raggedy. And uh, the damp humidity of the rainforest does that to you. And, uh, and when I got as thin as I've ever been. Um, and so the greatest lesson to me has been but the serenity that we too can have the serenity of orangutans if we take their attitude towards the universe that they have. They don't need anything. All they need is fruit, basically. And they need, you know, some branches to make a nest and some branches to make an overhead cover. And they're they're actually uh, stronger than we are because they don't even need friends. <laughs> I mean, that was, you know, I, I look at orangutans sitting there by themselves. They've been following them for days, you know, day in, day out. They've never met another, they wouldn't meet another orangutan. Maybe they'd hear one in the distance and they would avoid him or her. And I would look up at them and I'd say, think to myself, don't you ever get lonely? You know, because I'd get lonely as a human being. So, so the other lesson was that in contrast to orangutans, we humans do need each other. I mean, in that way, orangutans, keep comparing them to God. 
you know, to a small, with a small G, um, because they don't need anybody else. They're self-contained. But, but we are not. We're humans. And we do need each other. We do need to have compassion for each other. And that's what makes us human. So those are the two lessons that I learned from the Lincolns. And they may seem like the simplest lessons that even a child understands. But you know what? We don't. And we don't. Let's speak it on. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then feel free to subscribe and we will see you in the next one.